Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Lit Up. This week's guest is Trent Dalton, the award-winning journalist at The Weekend Australian and the author of Boy Swallows Universe, his debut novel. His novel starts in 1983. A lost father, a mute brother, a mum in jail, a heroin dealer for a stepfather, and a notorious criminal for a babysitter. It's not as if Eli's life isn't complicated enough already, but he's trying to follow his heart, learning what it takes to be a good man. I got to meet Trent in Brisbane, in his hometown, just a stone's throw away from the Courier Mail where he first started his career. We recorded at the Carlisle Hotel, which was a beautiful place, and the two of us just got in there. I wouldn't, I want to say we locked eyes, but we kind of did because he has these incredible green eyes and we just went for it. It was such a pleasure and I think you'll really love this episode. Here's Trent. What a pleasure it is to have Trent Dalton here in his hometown of Brisbane. Thank you for coming on the pod. Thank you for coming to my hometown. Brisbane just kind of needs you, you know, people like you here in our city doing this brilliant stuff. So it's a true honour. Thank you for having me. Well, I feel like the book is going to shed light on Brisbane in many different ways, (laughs) good or bad. But firstly, okay, so we're here to talk about Boy Swallows Universe and it's your debut novel. Firstly, we're going to touch on so many different things, but it's really about love in all of its many forms. Wow. Oh, I love Isn't that. Isn't it? Oh, I love that. That's the first thing you go to. I just think that's brilliant because honestly, that's it. Like I wrote the thing. I'm like, what else is there? What else is there? What else is there? And what else is there as a, as a thing to investigate? You know, really, like from a storytelling perspective, you know, like it is a pretty fascinating old thing to investigate, right? And I've done it in strange ways in this book. But it's so cool that you hook on that because I swear to God, it was like I would sit down, you know, in front of my computer. I'll tell you the first aspect of love if you've got time. Let's, I won't make this if go I've three got hours time, if you don't this mind. This is the point. But I would, I would absolutely start from as deep a love of a place as I have, which is, and I haven't sort of said this much, but uh, I, would, I would sit down before my computer. I'd go downstairs in my house in Brisbane here um, at around 8 o'clock at night and I would think of my daughters. I've got two daughters, they're now 11 and nine, and I would think about a world without them in it. That's how weird, is that a weird thing to say? I, don't, I, would, I would think about the things that could have happened in my life in which I don't get to meet them. And uh, that's the first thing I'd do, right? I, I would think about that as a physical kind of feeling and that would charge me up, Angie. I would be sort of kind of, I would um, feel that emotion. And that, would, that was love. Like that's the first love bit about the whole writing of that, right? And even though my kids aren't in that book at all, they're kind of so in it. It's so bizarre. Like it's like because I was thinking about that depth of love and if I could pull that out 
and extend that to my wife who kind of is in the book and then my mom who's very much in the book, my brothers who are very, very much in the book and all these people of my past who I loved genuinely and I just figured if I could get that feeling across onto the page, then I might have something. You know, I don't know what, but I just might have something. And for you, as we sit here in this cool kind of little place in Brisbane, to mention that word first up, man, that just means everything. So thank you. Yeah. It's all love. It's all love. And I'm thinking of one of the, it's going to be an unusual scene to pick out as one of my favourites, but it's when Eli, our protagonist, is outside the Courier Mail building, which is, um, for those of you, it's almost like the Boston Globe <laughs> yeah, yeah, newspaper yeah. of yeah. Queensland. Yep. And he's trying to get in and he's pressing the buzzer and the receptionist is like, who are you? Why are you here? And he goes, I have a story. I need to get in. And she says, you know, she's brushing him off really. And she's like, what? type of story and he's thinking you know crime story all the stories he could say and he goes it's a love story oh man stop it you give me chills you give me chills yeah yeah i forgot about that moment that's right he is saying that he's he's going through like what is this what is this life i i am leading what is this story yeah and And also how do i get into a place and what's the hook for people and i love it that she howls with laughter and she's like Oh, hello, Romeo. What's your name? And I just, and I know this, I mean, when people have read the book, you'll, this scene is so small and doesn't necessarily, you know, involve all these other characters that we love so much. But in that moment, I thought, I thought of that woman laughing at reception and I was like, aren't we all her? Like I, that's why I read books. Oh man, oh, this is great. Yeah, like it's amazing. Even yeah, you mentioned that building. I've just come from that building. I still work in that building. You know, like that that building is just down the road from where we're speaking, and it's this epic kind of brown brick building that has been in Brisbane forever. And I kind of am out of place in that building and that's what that kids that that scene is from that sense that I've had for 20 years as a journalist working in that building so you know there's there's a there's a happy ending to that to that story and it kind of you know I do get that job and I do sort of get to work in that building but um the that scene is straight out of that sense that I'm a bit of a ham in that place like it's like a a a guy with the wishy-washy dreamer type thoughts that I have in that building it doesn't quite fit all the time and I'm quite known as sort of the you know and it's in all through the book it's like it's like mate you are so not a crime writer you are so not a hardcore news writer you've got too many of these feelings you want to write the love story you know and that and that came out in that book and it, and, and it's that it's um i love that eli felt that because that is seriously straight from me feeling those feelings sitting in a re- surrounded by journos who can sometimes be a bit cynical and they have every right to because they see the horrors of the world every day, right? You're sitting next to court reporters who see the real tough stuff every day. And then you've got a guy like me going, coming back into the office and going, you know, I did this story and I, you know, it's the most amazing love story and I think I can tell it right. I'm going to tell it like this. And I start talking in kind of storyteller jargon. And they're like, yeah, whatever, mate. You know, just I've just got to quickly bash this out before deadline. And, you know, it's sort of this funny thing. And that's what that security woman is laughing because people laugh at that, like that to me all the time, Angie, when I say this, say this stuff. But people were saying that they were laughing like that at me when I was that age as well, when I was like, when I was Eli Bell's age, when I was dreaming big, 
and uh, you know, and that that's right because that is all of us, isn't it? We all howl when we when we see these big grand themes, but yet we've all felt love. We've all felt love stories. You know what I mean? That's what I'm, that's what Eli's tapping into. It's just that he suddenly realizes in that moment, oh, hang on. I'm actually telling a love story. I'm living, I'm living a love story here. And it happens to be the strangest kind of love. You know, he's in love with, for one thing, a girl who's out of his league and the deep love he has, he's just lost, which is his mum. you know, and that, you know, don't even get me started on that. Cause I'll, I'll be weeping into your recorder here, but um, you know, and that, but that, that's some real, that's some real love. Like the kid's just filled with it and he, he kind of doesn't even know it. And it's almost like he realized it at that point when he's speaking through that intercom to that security officer, you know, it's just like, well, actually it's a love story. I realize now if, if I had to crystallize it, which the kid's always having to do in the book, yeah, it's a love story. Is there any bigger, you know, it's a, it's a cool thing. Yeah. Well, and touching upon your mum, kind of the big love in this book mm, and mm. then Another aspect you talked about, this ripple effect of if all those little pivots or circumstances hadn't happened, you wouldn't really be right here. Like we could be in this room and you could be sitting on this side of the table. It's a terrible example. but No, no for sure. Yeah. Um, and that I've read that there was a spark for this book when your mum had one of those oh, yeah, yeah. existential moments yeah. of thinking everything has led to this. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you've got to imagine how kind of the story of Boy Swallow's universe begins in one of those very moments that you just said then in terms of you could have been on the other side of the table. My mum could have been on the other side of a highway as she was hitchhiking from Sydney to Brisbane and my old man picked her up in a car. That's how that relation, that's how Boy Swallow's universe begins. That's how Trent Dalton begins, you know. That has always flipped me out in the sense of it's like that. You know, that car goes past or it stops. Mum's standing on the other side of the road or she's on that side. You know, it's that stuff. I, I get chills thinking about that. what type of man picks her up? <laughs> oh, man, what type of man? My, my old man was a very good man, right, for all of his demons and all the things that, you know, I kind of touch on in the book. He was a beautiful man. But it could have been someone completely different that picks her up. You're exactly right, you know. She might not have even made it. And, you know, I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff goes through your mind. So then cut to maybe Christmas time. It was probably I probably four or five years ago. Um, a Dalton family Christmas, is, is, which is a novel in itself. I'll <laughs> maybe write one day or maybe I shouldn't. I've, I've written enough about um, stuff. But, uh, but, you know, a beautiful Christmas uh, at Bribey Island, which is just a bit north from here, about an hour's drive up the highway near the Sunshine Coast on the way to the Sunshine Coast, a beautiful little island. And my whole family was back with my old man. My beautiful dad was alive at this time. It was sort of pretty much the last really good Christmas I spent with him. And, uh, and you know, mum was there and we'd had this great kind of time all together, all of us. Like I've got three older brothers and all of our families and we all got kids and we all sort of booked out this big kind of unit place. And um, it was a great time and really, you know, hot, sunny kind of you know one of those Aussie Christmases that is everyone's sweating and we shouldn't have cooked a turkey but we cooked a turkey <laughs> yeah. that was you know three times the size of any you know turkey I've ever seen and mum is the next day we're in a parking lot kind of area the side of a road kind of thing and my daughter Beth she's dancing between these paperbark trees that are on that kind of line Bribey Island it's the most beautiful scene and just that sort of 
one of those frozen moments where you we were both mum was we were packing Christmas presents in the back of mum's car this Holden Barina she had this blue Holden Barina she had at the time and we both got caught in this moment of Beth because Beth was dancing like she is like a dancer that's what she does right she lives to dance but the best dancing she normally does this hip-hop type stuff but the best stuff she does is this random kind of interpretive stuff i see her do when i'm playing some i don't know she'll do it to pearl jam she'll do it to like the cure like she'll just dance to anything and she'll do these interpretive kind of things and she had this must have had a song in her head and she was doing one of these dances among these trees and uh on bribey and mum and i were just transfixed and then she stops i swear to god this is no word of a lie she turns to me and she said she says, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change a thing, Trent. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, you know, and I sort of just got it immediately. But, as, you know, she means I wouldn't have changed any of the mad, ridiculously wild things that were part of all of my brothers and her life and my dad's life or any of our whole family existence. She wouldn't change it because that would, that would mean not being right in this moment and seeing that girl do that and being with her boys on that weekend and, you know, on that Christmas. And, you know, I, I, just, and I just love that notion that, that everything leads to something. And, and I know it's been said before a thousand times, you know, is that everything's meant to be. This whole book I wrote in that sense. So I went back through essentially what I was doing was going back through and in that same way that you just noted about the way Eli talks to that lady and says it's a love story, what I was doing was kind of putting this more enchanted spin on things that were actually in real life quite tragic and quite sad. But I was going back and trying to work it as if in a fictional sense that everything that happened to us boys and to mom and, and to my old man and to, and to basically the guy who's Lyle in the book I'm trying to rework it as if it was all meant to be because it's leading to true love. It's leading to Caitlin Spies and thus leading to Beth Dalton dancing among those trees. So it's sort of, sorry for the long answer, but it's like that is such a profound kind of driver of the book. It was me trying to put a spin on what is just essentially tragic and but just sort of to sort of go, oh, no, hang on, it was the universe. That was the universe saying, Trent, you need to go through all this. Originally the book... And I pitched this to my old man. I said to my old man before he passed, I said, I'm thinking about doing a book where a kid knows, uh, you know, almost a do-over book. It was like the idea of, you know, the kid's got a do-over and you get, but the, the, the payoff, the, the, the deal that the universe makes with him is that he can't say to anyone that he's doing it all over again. So he just has to endure it all. But the kid knows where, he, where it's all going. He knows it's going to Caitlin Spies. That was originally the concept in my head of the book. And I told my old man that. And he just went, you know, this was over beers in, in a little housing commission unit on Bribey Island. And uh, oh, just thinking about him, I get thinking about him and I look at that book and don't even, I mean, it's like he's not here to see that book in your hands here and that I'm talking to you, this amazing kind of book-loving, passionate person like you has read a thing. He was just like you, you know, he just loved books just like you. And, uh, and so he would love to even be sitting here listening to this. But, um, uh, you know, I told him, I said, you know, I think I want to do this. I want to look at our past and look at it as if it has to be. And he's like, yeah, that's cool. And, uh, you know, he got that. He sort of got the romance of that. He was such a rom romantic at heart, that guy. And, um, and, you know, the book totally changed a little bit, but there is definitely an element of that. Eli's sort of feeling, he's got this instinctive feeling that 
that this is all going somewhere, but it's the Spielberg in him, right? It's just the kid. He's just seen too many American movies and he's sort of dreaming too much, you know? So he's sort of going, oh, this is just some big adventure. But in fact, no, he's in way too deep and it's actually the Brisbane underworld and it's a very dark place. And, and you know, he's taking phone calls that he shouldn't be taking and he's going into rooms he shouldn't be going into. And that's very exciting because then that was all stuff I was feeling as a kid. Oh, maybe I shouldn't be hearing this conversation. So it's sort of, yeah, it's all filled with that kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm totally rambling. No, so, this yeah. is the why we're cool, here. This that's is right. uh, Maybe, maybe, maybe that's it, yeah, yeah. But also, so Eli has an older brother, August, mm, who doesn't mm. speak. Yeah, yeah. And... But I feel like he's also the one that's saying it it gets good. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. just, I mean, the way you're talking about that, like did you through your childhood have that type of idea or person saying it's going to get good? Or have you gone back, like you said, and almost conjured that feeling in hindsight, yeah, I, I think I think that's very insightful. I, th- I think um, I think I did go back in hindsight and and kind of place that on even myself or even on myself through Eli, this kid I invented, who's kind of much savvier and stronger and wittier and sort of more street smart than I ever was. So I created this kid so he'd take me back through all these moments from my past. And um, but the truth of it is, and you know, you can interview my older brothers. I think the truth of it is, you know, at the time when you're sitting in some of those places and in some of those rooms and some of those houses, it doesn't feel like it's going to get good. But my brothers and I, and I don't know where it came from or why, we had either an incredible positivity, an incredible hope streak um, inside us deep and an incredible kind of resilience. So they were very powerful things. So you'd be um, running out of the house because you're terrified for your life because, you know, um, things aren't going well inside a house that you're living in. But as you're walking down the street, you're only 50 metres out of the house and you're telling jokes, you know, like that's the hope and the resilience sort of kicking in, you know, and that was the story of my brothers and my life. Like, and, and so that aspect of it gets good was genuinely, um, you know, straight up from my older, eldest brother, Joel, Ben, Jesse, all the way down in the sense of they weren't as sort of, they didn't crystallise it in the beautiful ways August does, but they did it in the way of like just trying, this life isn't always going to be, like always letting, letting me know that the minute you're 18, you are out of here, mate. You know, that that is your ticket. You know what I mean? Like it's sort of like so that was the it gets good because you'll make it good. You know, you'll you know, you've got that head and you've got that brain and we all have. We've got a humor and we've got a a love of books and words and things. We've got tools. But then I always used to look at these guys and go, How do you know? Like how do you how are you so confident? Why are you so confident about that? And that's where August comes from. He's like, it gets good. I just know I have this sense. And I did have very special brothers who were very much I have crowbarred into August. They are very special dudes, like way smarter than you know me and way more kind of, you know, just brilliant guys, but just could could just say the right thing to me at the right time and I go, You're you're so special. Like, how did you know to say that? How did you get that wise? And, you know, August, you know, that aspect of August, like that he kind of does this beautiful thing where he writes in the sky. Well, that's all true. Like that's my brother, Jesse, who I would go out to these houses we were living in, in the outer suburbs of this city. 
And, um, you know, I'd just catch him sitting on a fence writing words in the sky and he's writing his whole bloody life story in the clouds, you know, and it's just like, what? You, and I'm like, what did you just write? What, what was that? And he's like, ah, oh, nothing, you know. That That is him, man. Like he is a deeply, you know, spiritual guy. He's the most spiritual guy without being overtly like, hey, I'm Mr. Spiritual Guy, but he is in tap with something very deep and it had always fascinated me. And But so is Ben and Joel as well. So it's sort of like this cool thing I think I've you know that's that's why I sort of had to kind of write this book because the most interesting people in my life for quite a long time the most interesting characters I could ever create were just the people that were outside my bedroom growing up my eldest brother Joel just didn't buy it you know I just he just didn't believe in the world we were in you know and he always knew there was something better for him and we just followed, you know, and that, that's a very powerful thing. And, you know, my wife said to me this really amazing thing the other day, like it was a really chilling thought. So Lyle, who's, you know, in the book, like in real life, and this is a fact, like he, he holds a record here in Queensland for the guy who spent the most time behind bars. And uh, it's a strange record to have, but that's his record. And, um, and what for? Uh, for for largely drugs, largely for the things that he sort of yeah. was doing in Boyce Wallace's universe. So basically that, you know, was kind of all from real stuff. This, this is a guy that my mum fell in love with in the, in the 1980s and a guy who, you know, I still care deeply about, you know, and I say that on every, I, I sort of say that because I sort of just, I don't know, maybe he's out there listening to this and it's my way of sort of saying, mate, I never forgot it. I never forgot the love that he gave to us and, and it's it's a whole deep complex thing I could go on and on about as well, but but um, there was that sense from people like Joel, Ben, and Jesse that like don't don't buy into this world and don't waver. My 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 wife said something really deeply chilling to me the other night, and she's like, you know what's interesting? I wonder what would have happened if Lyle didn't go down. If Lyle didn't, what happened was it all sort of fell away, right? But in in real life. Lyle went to the slammer, went to Boggo Road Prison. And, uh, and my wife said this amazing thing, like, you know, imagine if Lyle didn't get caught. Like, that's a scary thought. Like, if us boys did actually grow up for a longer time in that oh, world, yeah. that starts to get dangerous and really quite terrifying. You know what I mean? I just think it's not, it's not that much of a stretch to think, well, hey, I might just take up the family business. But my brothers didn't buy it. You know, they didn't go in for it. No, they, they were just we have something else for us. And we didn't, I didn't know what that was. They didn't even know, I guess, but they just knew it wasn't that. And I just always am amazed that they felt that way. I don't know why they felt that. I still don't know. I, st- I asked Joel this question constantly and we talk about this bloody book all the time. And he's like, why did you write that bit? And, and, and we're really fascinated with it because I think it was a fever that I wrote it, right? And I'm still trying to work it out myself. And so Joel and I and Ben and, you know, we'll... We'll sit and have some beers and we'll just talk about these things that I brought up in that book. And Joel would see that book completely different if it was written through his eyes. It would be a completely different book and probably somewhat darker. And uh, because he was older and he saw the things at a lot more of a mature age, you know, he wore a lot of really tough stuff. And and we always talk about that, like, but it, we're interested in ourselves. We're trying to work it out. I think this book is just part of that process, trying to just us processing stuff that we, we, we haven't processed in ever, ever. You know, it's like, it's like I probably should have gone to a psychologist, but I wrote a 470-page book instead. There's a part in the book, and I heard it 
was you know a real life occurrence of you being a five-year-old and playing or saying to your stepdad I love you dad oh man and him saying back I'm not your dad but I love you too I mean oh crush me right now oh really oh I love that is that you're real? Getting me, you're getting me but teary. That's, that's true, isn't uh, it? You know, I'm like, I'm, man, that's so true. Like, that's my first memory. That is my, that is my most vivid, earliest memory. That is where consciousness begins for me, Angie. Like, that is, um, I'm sitting on a brown leather lounge. I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a yellow shirt. Like, I, I can be that finite with the deep. Like, it's, um, I'm in a yellow shirt with brown sleeves because I wore that shirt all the time. I look down and I. I can show you the freckle. It's fading a bit. I don't know if you can see that, but that freckle, freckle comes back. Yeah. I put it on my forefinger in the book. Yeah. I look, that freckle is my lucky freckle, right? But I don't think it's lucky or anything. It's just consciousness, right? It's like I rem- it is associated like with that. while. It's like that weird. Yeah, time slows down. Time moment. slows down. It's that time thing that Slim talks about and all that stuff. It was. This is a, this is a slow motion moment, right? But I, I think it's because it's this sacred moment in my head and it has been f- so long and that is the moment yeah and I look down I see that freckle and I look up and I turn to my left and sitting on that lounge is Lal and uh, you know um and I say to him I love you and and uh and and I say sorry I say I love you dad and um and I don't know why I said that I don't know why I said I love you know I was just obviously as a kid needing to say that word you know maybe kids primarily need it on a primal sense need to say that word to someone and I said, I love you, dad. And he said, and, it, you know, it gives me chills. He turned to me and he said, and this is the character, this is the quality of the man. This is why my, my old man, my real dad, my beautiful dad, Noel, my real dad, who, you know, it cuts me up that I didn't, you know, I was calling other people bloody dad because this guy is a very significant guy in my life, my real dad. Um, my old man always uh, respected Lyle. He always thought he was a man of good character. Despite, okay, look, I mean, you know, I don't want to, I can't, you know, I don't want to excuse any of criminality and all that because, you know, you know, putting freaking junk on streets is just shit. And I've seen, I've written plenty of stories on the other side of that about what happens because of that. But um, this guy looked at me that day and he said, I love you too, mate, but I'm not your dad. And, And I don't know, you know, there's probably heaps of people out there who have probably been in that weird kind of, Who's, who's your role model situation, you know, children of divorce and all that. And there's always some douche in your life who's trying to sort of step in and be that dad figure when they're not really meant to be that person. And I just always admired that guy for saying that, to sort of for going, you know, no, you have a dad and you need to remember that he's a, he's a and I've met him and he's a good guy. So you make sure you remember that and you'll, you will connect with him one day soon. You know what I mean? It's so like, that's what it's he was saying. It's been so clear to a child and also... Children know so much more. They're so instinctual and probably that distinction was so important for you at that point. You're like, I'm loved by this man and that's really what counted. And there was nothing, there was nothing, it was like, yeah, you're so right, like, he just made it so clear. You're so right what you say just then. He made it so clear for me. It was like there is no, there's no static, there's no strange thing going on here. I am not your dad but I love you, you know, like, just so you're clear, kid, you know, and, and like that was, and it made me love him more. It made me love him more. And then the next time I first see my old man, it's, 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 he's, he's kind of, I have this vision of him. I'm sitting down the bottom of a staircase and I see this guy, my real dad, 
and I just hug him uh, to death because Lyle has given me license to. You know what yes. I mean? It's like it's like that. Also, that's your guy. There's I can't remember who said it, the great writer, but this idea that love is not a pie. What is that? What are you? What, um, what is that? Yeah, so yeah. there's a short story. I think it's Amy Hempel, but I better check yeah. for everyone. But the t- it's all about love and parents. But this idea that if love was a pie and there were just there's not a certain oh. amount of number of pieces. Oh, of course, you don't just cut it up and into beautiful little. No, here's your bit, and, and it's here's, gone. here's the bit from me. It's just here's more. Yeah, mm, you can mm. have. Oh man, the love is just. You know, there's a million pieces in a 10-piece pie. You know, it just is infinite. Oh, you're so right. Well, I've been thinking about this term, nailed it. You know how people go, nailed it, nailed it. And, you know, just, you know, and I was was listening to this thing, Willem Dafoe, the great actor Willem Dafoe, who you see (laughs) you saying this on a podcast, and I've... And I was thinking about the word nailed it and the term nailed it in terms of parenting. What you were just saying, it's like you don't nail it because you don't drive it spike through it and fix it to something it's always moving you know you don't nail anything when it comes to love you know what i mean you don't nail it and that's the that's the whole idea and it's like yeah all right i gotta remember that it's like i'm not nailing it i don't ever nail it as far as being a husband or a dad or you know or being a role model to my kids i'm i just kind of am always moving and and it's not a pie it's not a fixed thing yeah it's not there are not portions yeah it's totally viscous you know it's like that it's always moving it's it moves slow but it just kind of morphs and kind of you know it just goes all over the place as it should yeah far out but you can get it from anywhere that's right that's right yeah well and just reconciling that lyle with this lyle so this is a small passage from the book Mum's love came hard. There was pain in it. There was blood and screams and fists and fibro walls because the worst thing Lyle ever did was get mum on drugs. I guess the best thing Lyle ever did was get mum off drugs, but he knows, I know, that the latter could never make up for the former. He got her off drugs in this room, this room of true love, this room of blood. Far out. (laughs) Oh, wow, you read that beautifully. But... Oh man, that's just poured out though. That's a soul cough. That's just like, you know, it's a like a soul I can't even cough. Re- I've never heard of that. That's before. a soul cough. Yeah, that's just like that's all that whole book. It was a series of soul coughs and just going, you know, get it out. Just like get it out from right down here and just go. That's what it feels like, you know. Yeah, yeah. But that's really interesting, and that's all. That's all stuff my bros and I talk about. Like that's all just memory and, um, you know, and, and feeling and kind of, um, yeah, just vivid kind of stories and you just kind of, yeah, and it's just like so much a part of you and you just want to share it with all of the love and all the sort of kind of strange feelings as well. And the way you just read it then, I got all those feelings. That's really cool, yeah. Well, and it speaks to, I think, which is kind of throughout the book, the biggest, the big theme really for me anyway this idea that, like, what is a good person? Mm, mm, And Eli mm. is obsessed with asking every man he comes across, (laughs) he comes across, are you a good man? (laughs) And I wondered, like, what, what is a good man? And in, like, I feel like there are many good men in this book and yet, say, Lyle, the passage I just read versus the one that says to a five-year-old, I love you, mate, you know, but your mm. dad loves you too. Mm. 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 I, I think you've spoken about 
like if we get good wisdom from people who've done bad yeah, things, yeah. does it make it yeah. any less profound? Prof- oh man, that's so right. Yeah. Um, here's a, here, here's a story, Angie. Like my my mum has told me since this book, right? So the first thing I did, you know, because it is kind of semi autobiographical. I guess we've established that, but like you know, I had to do certain things before it was going to get published. And largely the first thing I did as soon as I hit full stop on the last page was send that book manuscript to my mum and just go, look, I'm so sorry you didn't raise a carpenter who could have built you a cupboard. I wrote you a book and um, and you must read it because if there's any line in here that you can't stomach, you know, you need to tell me and it won't go, it won't be out there. You know, we'll, we'll I'll slide it back into the drawer because... There's certainly no way you can do something like this and then um, be be kind of I don't know live with yourself sleep at night if if you've caused pain to the people you love and that you that in that you were hoping to honor like yeah. in the process of honoring them you kind of made them hurt like fuck that would be so bad that would be so terrible and I was really worried about that and it's the great worry I still have you know that they haven't told me fully how they feel about it or but they have told me they've all told me how much they love it and how my mum called me back after reading it in like a day and a half marathon read like full just immersion she calls me up and she's like Trent it's beautiful and um it's bigger than us and it's something more powerful than us and kind of you need to you need to put this out there because I think it will speak to a lot of a lot of people, a lot of people across the world even who kind of might connect with these themes and these characters and so forth. And um, and then, but then after, so she's just, and she's just got this wry smile on her face the whole time. You know, she's had it on for the past year because she knows things, Angie, that like I don't even have a clue about. You know what I mean? She knows elements to this story that would freaking boggle your mind, you know, and, yeah. and she reveals them in little moments and I just gasp and my wife gasps and we just laugh and we go fucking hell I'm so glad you didn't tell me that at 15 you know or you know and it's amazing but one one cool thing she just happened to tell me was about Slim so Slim right Slim Halliday Houdini of Boggo Road he's all through the book and he's kind of Eli's okay when Eli has to you know he gets this notion of breaking into Boggo Road women's prison on Christmas Day to save his mum's life. He's sort of got to do that. Who better to go to than his old mate, the friend who visits him? He's kind of babysitter figure, Slim Halliday, the Houdini of Boggo Road, famous for escaping the Boggo Road men's prison in the 1950s twice. The inescapable Boggo Road prison. He escaped it. He got out twice, and he was a legendary figure. Like there are, you could go up to that building up where I work, and you could find the files that I found where. It says Houdini has done it again. He's like a Ned Kelly figure, you know. I also looked up pictures of him. He's like Errol Flynn. <laughs> he's I was a pretty. Like, this man. He's a pretty dapper dude. No wonder dude. he. I mean, not no wonder, but just it made it well, all. I was like, he's a sharp operator. Yeah, on well, many that was levels. it. Oh, well, that was his. That's so he. He absolutely had that mystique. That was all part of his game. That was his thing. That's right. He conned. He conned people into getting him things inside the prison. You know, with his charm. It's like he. He, he got guys to fashion fake pistols, all sorts of amazing stuff Slim got up to. But I knew Slim in the mid-1980s, like my brothers, as just this beautiful, 
wise old man who did some gardening around our house and did some odd jobs and was really good friends with Lyle, with with my mum's fella. And uh, But we loved Slim. I sat on Slim's lap as he sort of honked his horn in his Land Cruiser and we'd laugh and we'd play. And then cut to like I'm 25 and a journo for the Courier Mail and I, and I start looking up stories on Slim Halliday and it's like, oh... Slim Halliday killed a guy and, uh, you know, and it's like, um, you know, he was, he was, you know, he was put away for some serious stuff. Mind you, some stuff that he, a lot of people around Brisbane, a lot of historians say he potentially could not have, uh, might not have done, might not have done, I should say. And, and if he did do them, my freaking deepest sympathy is with the family first. But um, there's some great writers who've written some books, some journos written some books about how strange it was. A lot of the things that went down as far as Slim Halliday going to prison for life for murder. But that guy was still a lifer, right? He's a prison lifer. And, um, and so when my mum's in her darkest hour, right, this is something my mum, she's like, you know, she's in her darkest hour. She's going through hell. And uh, it was Slim Halliday who goes to my mum and says, you know, this world has taken a lot. It's taken your pride and it's taken a lot out of you. But this is what he says, Angie. He says, I know it sounds cheesy and ridiculous. This is what he says. He says, but it will not take one thing. This, it will never, ever, ever take this one thing. And that's the love you have for those four boys, your sons. And so that at that point in mum's life is the words she needs to hear, right? And this woman is this warrior hero of mine, this amazing woman who, you know, is basically, you know, the hero of that story just by existing, you know, nothing, nothing, you know, there's no major heroics that she does in that book, but she does it just by existing and, and, and bringing the love that she would do for 20 group more hug. years. Group hug, group hug, all that stuff. But so Slim's the guy that's there for her in that moment, right? He wasn't there all the time or anything, but like just in that moment, she needed to hear something and that guy gives it. So that guy kind of changes her fate a little bit. So is he a good guy? You know, it's like, do we, does she take that from him or does she not take that because he's a murderer? You know, it's like, but can't she keep that advice? And, and that, that is where that notion comes from. That's kind of the story of my life in many ways. Even, you know, my old man living in like Brackenridge Housing Commission, all sorts of rogues coming around who don't look like the best of men, but tell you the most amazing things and give you the most amazing leg ups. And so your legs up and, uh, you know, and you kind of, you admire them and you kind of give thanks to them and you pay fealty to them, but you don't know whether they're good guys or not. You still, the verdict's still out. Are they, are they inherently flawed or, well, it's that notion that like me, you know, I'm totally flawed, a flawed guy. And I don't think any man is, you know, all one thing, you know, and they, that was the men in my life. So I kept on going, you know, so Eli's doing the same thing I was doing. Are you, are you good? Like, can I take wisdom from you? Like, can I, can I believe what you're saying? And can I trust the wisdom you're about to give me? Cause I'll take it, man. I'll, I'll take it. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. If you've got something to say, I'll drink it in. You know, that, that was, that was it. That was me. I was just freaking watching and listening and for quite a long time and trying to work out who the good guys were. In the end, you know, you, you realise it was always your own old man and, you know, I, yeah, you know, but you had to get over a whole bunch of stuff first to sort of realise that. So, you know, it takes us all a while to realise that, hey, like who are the good yeah, people in your life, yeah. you know, like, you know. Yeah. And at certain points we let ourselves down, you yes. know, and being, yes. ooh. Totally. This, the book made me think a lot about that 
or like also who are the good men in my life. Yeah, but right. But then am I right. like who's a good woman? And then yeah, yeah, yeah. And how? Like at the end of it, I was like, what? Like who? Who am I? Or oh what, wow, wow. What is a good person? But good is just this. I've just been thinking about words a lot, and I'm like, there but there must be more words. Oh wow, That's... than we have <laughs> <laughs> for the complexity of yes. what of what yeah human yeah. connection is. Yeah. Oh, you're so right. I'm like good, oh. bad. Like, oh. can we make up some more? Oh, my wife got me for Christmas that wonderful. Have you seen? It's like a box, and it's like twenty cards filled with words from across different languages oh, that mean that, things that we, we don't, don't understand. That we don't, and I love that. Yeah, I love that whole notion. It's like that's yeah. Brilliant. Like in Japanese, there are all these words for kind of a yeah. an a, a certain as, atmospheric oh, mist or something. Mist, that's and right, like, all please. that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need yeah. more words. That's right, that's right. But like that notion is is deep and it's kind of, yeah, it was very powerful and it's sort of, um, it's everything that I'm about, I guess. It's the same thing I've been asking for many years, yeah. But yeah, it's a great thing. But kind of zeroing in on men because I do mm. feel like the book is about, kind of, I hate to use this phrase that we're all hooked on at the moment, toxic masculinity. Toss, toxic masculinity, yeah. <laughs> And it's also, a, there, must, there must be more words for the complexity of this issue. But I want to read something in here because it feels like Eli is really, thinks men suck. Like grown men can be so awful. And he says, he's like, adult men, fucking adult men, nutters, all of them, can't be trusted, (laughs) fucking sickos, freaks, killers. And then when he's writing, so we have to say that Eli has a pen pal. And I'll (laughs) ask you to explain more about that. But he's writing to Alex who's in prison. And he says, the problem with the world, every crime ever committed can be traced back to someone's dad. Robbery, rape, terrorism, mums too, mums maybe too, I guess, but there ain't no mum in this world that wasn't first the daughter of a shit dad. Like that to me just spoke to so many problems that we have in not just in this country, I think all over the world. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, look, I, I had some profound kind of, um, yeah, like I didn't even know I was writing about toxic masculinity. No, you know, I, I mean, I was just doing it. I was just yeah. writing my truth, I guess you might call it, or just something that these realisations that that men can be beasts. Like, I mean, I'm telling, I'm tell, like, on it, you put, you put 20 men and... One, I, I, what I'm talking about is a primal thing about men that we ha, we ha, and it's frightening. Like I have seen it, and I know that we have these these beasts in us because we're not that far removed from the cavemen of our of our you know ancestors. You know, and it's like I, I, I'm fascinated with that thought, right? And the things that we can do, and that and that and that yeah, and that's what Eli's saying there. You know, they're you know fucking sickos and all that. You know. It's tapping into that that notion that it is actually quite frightening. Like, I mean, humans are frightening, right? If you if you, you can't analyze it too much because you wouldn't function in life, right? Yeah. You would if you sat there thinking about the things that humans can do, and thankfully we have police officers and so forth who who, who need to think about it more than us. But 
this is that notion sprang forth from a lot of work I've done as a journo in the area, particularly in Queensland, domestic violence, which is a massive thing in Queensland, right? It's all over Australia, and it's you know it it you know it's it's pretty rife, you know. And we've done some great stuff in our state and in this city, Brisbane, to kind of really address this really crippling kind of thing. But I, you know, I was doing some, a lot of stuff about ten years ago, and I had this sort of profound realisation from the people who were in it. And I'm talking going to women's shelters and talking to women. They're going, look, why are you even here, mate? They're going, why are you here? You need to be in the prison yard talking to all the blokes who broke my nose. You know, like that's what you need to be doing, buddy. And I did that. I went and found guys who were out of prison on, on reform kind of um, in, in rehabilitation for the crimes they had done to women. And that is a profound... Um, little moment in your life when you're sitting around a circle of blokes who are talking about, I'm sorry to get sort of dark. Um, Is it okay to go dark or is this, yeah, well, there's a guy uh, wrapped his wife in um, plastic, put her in the car, in a car, locked her in the car. This guy's sitting talking about his actions in this rehabilitation room, Um, locks her in the car and, and, proceeds to put gas like gasoline petrol all across the car and then stands in front of her with a lighter and is just like you do this to me again this is what you know and it was just this guy telling the story i'm talking this guy is like could have been you know he could be walking right down new farm sitting in a cafe i'm talking like just a normal dude i don't know what a normal dude is but just some dude who spoke well and would be at your backyard barbecue party saying that this is what he did. You know, this was the beast that was in him. And that's all quite frightening, you know, and it's sort of like this this idea, you know, and then that really did sort of get me thinking a lot about, yeah, where, where does society go wrong sometimes, you know? And, and I just think the value of a good dad can be underestimated sometimes in terms of not just being a good parent, but just being a good husband, right? You know, and just, you know, I'm, I'm freaking last to say I'm a perfect husband, but just that idea that if, if I can treat my wife right in the house and I can just show my girls that I'm showing her just how much I love her, you know, and we're going to have, we have our arguments and all that, but it's just like this kind of sense that it's like, man, I love her so deeply. If I can convey that and every, every guy conveyed that just in the house alone, that would change the world, you know, and, and it's like, you know, but this for me is kind of going back to, I could go back through legacies, you know, and just sort of go, well, there's some great men, you know, in my past, in my family, amazing men. But then I look back and I go, well, yeah, you know, what happened to my mum? And, you know, like she had moments, I'm, I'm not saying it's for her to talk about her old man, but, you know, she, her old man kind of left her, you know, like when she was a kid, right? And, you know, I say, okay, well, what what role did that? I mean, I, I don't know what that, how that figured. You'd need to talk to my mum about, but I'm sure that figured in somewhere, you know, in my mum's story, you know what I mean? And it's sort of like, and then, and, then a, and then a series of men, you know, in her life that kind of, you know, I could pinpoint her life through the men and sort of go, well, yeah, this happened, this happened. And that, 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 all that stuff is me just from pure heart and just going, that's actually frustration, that is. That's just anger coming out in that particular paragraph. It's like, fuck these guys. I'm so fucking sick of this. That's what Eli's, because I used to say, you know, it's like, fuck these. If I see another one of these guys do this to my mum again, I'm going to fucking kill someone. You know what I mean? It's that... That's what that kid's saying there. It's like, fuck them all, you know, and just I'm so over these guys, you know, and he's lost Slim. He's lost the, you know, the, he's lost the people that have kind of, you know, that were the good people. He's lost Lyle. He doesn't know where Lyle is. You know, he's 
he's got he's got no good figures, so fuck everyone else. You know, that's what he's sort of saying. And he's sort of like, yeah, but he doesn't know that he can be the next, you know, he can be the guy. He can be the good guy. You know, it's like it's up to you, man. You know, like that's what the book's about. That's a choice. That's just a choice, you know, and that I hope people, I hope if a bloke's reading that book, yeah, you know, it's like, or a kid, a kid who's 15 out in Brackenridge Housing Commission reading that passage and going, well, you know, there are a lot of plenty of good men and that's just a kid saying that at a certain point in time in that book and I certainly don't think all men are, you know, God, you know, yeah, they're amazing men and three of my three older brothers are a perfect example but it's like, yeah, you still, yeah, I still believe there's a, there's a hint of truth in that, yeah. Well, to rewind and go back into your childhood a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why do I get nervous when you say it? Yeah. You didn't speak very much when you were a kid. Was oh, that yeah, yeah. True? Like that, a lot of that, that selective mutism kind of stuff in August was genuinely like came from my own kind of real life. Like when I was quite young, you know, and it's almost before the time when I could really was conscious of my real old man, my real dad, um, he had said to my mum, like, I think this kid's got developmental issues. Like, I think he's actually quite, I think we need to sort of go see someone about him because I wouldn't talk. Like, I just, and I'd, I'd famously, and it's a famous story dad used to love telling, is like I would sit and look at puddles like I was one of those kids, just like looking, just studying and just watching and just... And I would do that for a quite some time and for a quite a long time. I don't, I don't really remember saying anything until like, you know, I was seven or so, you know, but I mean, I'm sure I did, but I just don't remember. Well, I just didn't contribute anything for one thing. And that's all probably part of also being the youngest of four boys, you know, kind so of wild cyclonic on. household. But it's also the interesting part of it is, and this was something and it feeds into this detail stuff that's all through the book is that you, you, I was a watcher. I was watching all the time. So I'm just kind of constantly looking at things and making sure people are okay or making sure I was watching someone would come around my old man's house. See, I'm talking this is when I was like 15 and, and dad would be on the piss and there'd be some matey's drag back from the tavern and and I'd be catching things that he's too drunk to notice about the person that he's with, you know what I mean? It's because you're looking out for him, you're being alert and you're kind of, you're looking at the details of that guy and going, oh, is this going to turn sour? Is this going to get dark in an hour? You know, and like, so that was your constant vigilance even as a kid and I think it comes from that kind of world of seeing some of that stuff and, yeah, but um, I'm also fascinated with that idea of um, it also comes, as you can tell from this podcast, is in later in life, I clearly don't have a problem with talking. Like I freaking ramble on like an idiot, right? And it's that idea of I wish I just shut up sometimes. I wish I just stopped and just stopped filling the spaces. You know, like I am definitely one of those people who needs to fill the awkward space. And I get around these brilliant people who use silence as this amazing weapon. I go, God, man, I wish I was Clint Eastwood like you, you know, and I could just study and observe and then come out with like, seven words instead of 70 and kind of in those seven words just sum up the situation you know so yeah and to finish have a minute to think about this if you need it so three words a headline for how how either you feel about life right now or how this book has changed things uh hold on tight hold on tight i mean it's just been like I am so deep in over my head right now, Angie. I cannot tell you. Like I don't, I don't have an agent. I um, 
I went into this like pure heart and soul. I just wanted to, I wanted to share with the world something beautiful that I saw and felt growing up and it kind of has been embraced by people and I, I genuinely didn't expect it. I thought, I thought maybe a few people might read it and go, hey, I, I read that obscure little book you wrote about that kid who sees a blue wren and feels something about blue wrens and, you know, feels some things about some of the dark characters that are in his life. And, you know, then you're getting calls from like movie type people and stage play people and kind of all sorts of inc- incredible things. And it's just when I say hold on tight, it's like hold on tight to to Eli, you know hold on tight to Eli. It's like, um, just, just, uh, just remember what it was at the, at the heart of that book and hold on tight to your bloody, you know, freaking wild ego and, and ambition and all that stuff. And just, just stay true. You know, it's like that, that's really sort of the thing for me. It's kind of just, that's what I've been really trying to navigate is my own kind of feelings about it all. And I'm in a really strange place. And like when it first came out, I was just really weird. Like it was just really strange, like to the point, like physically strange. Like I was just like, it was weird. I was getting sick and it was just very odd. And I was overthinking, I was just thinking about stuff. And, and now I'm in a really, I'm in a better place, but it's still strange, you know, and it's because I'm trying to just work out it's like you say is like who am I and what 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 am I still now what am I now from this like what is this like what why did I do this you know for what reasons you know and yeah you know it's like did I do it for the right reasons and all that stuff but hold on tight to Eli and you know he'll he'll probably show me yeah don't change a thing that's not three words but I wasn't <laughs> giving myself the test <laughs> the, the assignment thank you so much thank this is you, gonna Angie. be high five oh, that out that was massive I'm, we <laughs> needed you. that it was a really great chat it's thank lovely. you it's really lovely one of the best chats i've done and i just yes. can't thank you enough for taking the time what My an honor pleasure i hope you enjoyed this episode with trent i'm sure you'll all have your own takeaways from this one but mine was definitely not to judge anyone by who they are or by their past. And I know Trent um, writes so much about masculinity and all the complexities that it comes in. And I think I've just been musing on that ever since uh, we had that conversation. Let me know what you think at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.